Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Louise. We're back for a chapter review, Journey of the Adopted Self, Betty Jean Lifton. And today we're on chapter 13. So we already went through the mom and now we're on the fatherless self. Yes. Another sad chapter. (laughs) It's just everything is, (laughs) there's a lot of grief and sadness. There's a lot of grief and sadness. And did we have this addressed in the primal wound? I don't think she talked about. If there was, it was very minimal. Yeah. And she says that there's not a lot out there about the father. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not the triad, but in general, it's kind of this lost person, which is sort of what the chapter is about, right? Yes. So there were some quotes to start it that were sad, but I'm not going to read those, but it says the search for the lost father runs through much of modern literature. The father may have disappeared for a myriad of reasons, divorce, illness, desertion, death. The child who grows up without the father who gave him life will feel abandoned and unprotected in the world. Yeah, especially with boys. You know, I thought I thought that was interesting about the father, adoptive fathers, you know, not feeling like it must she gets into the psychology of how it takes their manhood away, kind of that they didn't father the child, you know. They they didn't have the child and be the man like to look up to and their adopted father's not really their father, this whole manhood thing. And I was like, wow talks about the father encompassing the roles of creator, lawgiver, impregnator, and master. The adoptive father who represents authority, power, and control is not the impregnator and may be perceived by the adoptee as asexual, henpecked, tied down while the birth father like is perceived as virile, macho. That was interesting. Young always has those. Yeah. And also I had, did you have fantasies kind of about your birth father, like who he might oh, be. Of course. I did too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the coolest of the cool, right? Yes. There's a little thing here that kind of brought up big stuff for me. It said the birth father's response to the adoptee will, as with the mother, depend on many factors, his relationship with the mother at the time of conception, his loyalty or disloyalty to her during pregnancy and delivery, his involvement in the adoption decision, whether or not he has kept a child a secret over the years and whether he feels he is in a secure place in present relationships. That was like, I feel like that, that paragraph just went boom because of what we've heard about different bio dads as well. And just things I know. And yeah, I didn't have any of those feelings because my birth father didn't know about me and Tilda never my birth mother never spoke to him because there was no cell phones and he'd been drafted into Vietnam. You know, she tried to get a message to him, but obviously it didn't get to him. So I didn't, I I didn't have those feelings. Well, he is no longer right. I wish I could have though. Yes. I know. I wish I could have too. So I know he had a lot of pain from PTSD. Yeah. And you, you wonder what kind of relationship you could have had or not had, but yes, you know, I'm kind of All going the unknowns. Yeah. I'm going through a little bit of like, do I want to know my bio dad? And does he want to know me? And I feel like that that paragraph really summed up like mm-hmm. maybe just even 
his feelings about being with her and how he supported her or didn't support her. And I never really thought about all the things she listed. She I was, thought about you a lot during this chapter just because of you did <laughs> recent stuff. Yes. Yeah, it really was like, okay, now it's my chapter, right? It's like, right. Almost, like last <laughs> chapter, I was thinking of review relationships, meeting your mom and stuff. So now, fathers and daughters, there was a story in here about Rachel. She was yes. the one that kind of hit me. How she had this reunion. It's a long story, but she had a reunion with her father. And it was so like, oh my gosh, who are you? Great, let's meet. Very exciting. And then he backed off big Mm -hmm. time. Well, and he so much has told her, like, I don't do well with needy people or whatever the word he used. Hungry. Hungry people. (laughs) Which just just felt so rude, you know? Just so rude. I don't do well with hungry people. It's like, yes, it makes makes you feel small. Like, I felt small on her behalf here. I did too. And she even said that was her Achilles heel, right? Is that she was needy, hence Mm -hmm. the adoptee problem. I mean, aren't we all? And then he said that she looked like his mother and who was hungry. hungry. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, uh, and I thought she negotiated it pretty well, actually. I don't think I would have been because she got back in there and showed up at his office and wrote him this big letter. And he did eventually they did have a relationship, which yes. made her feel more complete, but it had to be like he couldn't do the full involvement. And his wife was not happy about the relationship either. No. And so he had complications. And then there was other daughters who did find their father and they were lovely. And we've had a mm-hmm. couple guests, I think more guests than I was looking through all of our guests. A lot of the dads have been really welcoming mm-hmm. compared to them. There was one dad in here who was like, well, she's like, I was rejected by my birth mother. He's like, well, you have us now yes, or something. So, yes. you know, I would then- imagine there's less emotional baggage for the fathers, they didn't have to go through, you know, I think. especially if they weren't part of the pregnancy and, you know, that, so it's just, there might be some complications with their current life, but it seems like from all the stories I was reading in here, the emotional baggage is a lot less than with the birth mother. It is. That's when it gets into the sons. I also thought she talks about when the adoptee who's a son are less likely to search as we know. I know. I thought that was interesting. I mean, we... We deduced that, I think, from all Just, our interviews yeah. or, yeah. I feel like you and you I know that. that. We're always shocked. Like, what? You don't even... <laughs> yeah. They're less likely to search and they're really less likely to search for the father. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that got into the whole like manhood thing. Here it is. This is what I was referring to earlier. The adoptive father's unconscious anger and shame at not producing this child, even though a natural child may have been born to him after the adoption may make him try to put down an adopted son to pull out the supports rather than provide them Mm. to be competitive with him as if to prove his own manhood. God. Well, we have actually had a few of those people too. Like an early guest comes to mind with the adopted father. There are a few men who search for this, is what we're talking about. A few men who search for their birth fathers because their relationship with their birth mothers is very satisfying. They seek completion in finding Mm -hmm. the second half of themselves, but very few search for the birth father when the birth mother has gone awry. It's like, they don't want to now cross that bridge. And I feel like women are more like, not always. I mean, just as just from what we've deduced, we'll jump in and look for another thing. And the men are like, well, that didn't go well. Yes. Approaching that. 
one of our guests, David Daniels, comes to mind. Do you remember he really didn't think the birth father would be at all in his life? And he was he embraced him immediately. Yeah. And completely different kind of person than him. And yes. And yes. I, I happen to know him through a friend and he's still having a great relationship with him. So that's so great. Yeah, that's not always the norm. And today's guest actually has a lot to do with birth fathers and adoptive fathers. Yes, true. (laughs) This is true. So we'll welcome her. Yes. See you in a minute. See you in a minute. Hey, we just want to give a shout out to all of our Patreons to say thank you. We are so grateful for your support. And really, we can't thank you enough. If anyone would like to contribute, you can go to patreon.com and search adoption, the making of me. So many people have reached out wanting to be guests, and we would love to come to you weekly to make that happen. Your support will help us get there. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you. Thanks. So we're here today. We're excited about this guest. We are actually told about our guest through a friend of Sarah and I's who saw something about her on the news. And she's a singer, songwriter, Jenny Alpert. She's also AKA Cami. And we'd like to introduce her. Here we are. Welcome. Glad to have you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. We're very excited. So we kind of just want to dig right in. Tell us, we know your background and your story. We've been watching a lot about you. So tell us all about you from the beginning. From the beginning. Okay. I was adopted out of the foster care system right around four years old. My adoption was not an open adoption. However, there were a lot of factors that kept me in the foster care system for a couple of years because the courts were concerned upon my conception and they wanted to make sure that I was in a safe environment and took them a while to navigate each individual in the birth family realm to figure out why I may or may not fit there. While it was happening over the course of like the first two to three years, the court case would kind of go in and out and people would come in for interviews and there was kind of a whole big deal there. I was traveling through the foster care system. I was in one home for about a year. They were older. I was told one of them got sick. They needed to pass me along to somewhere else. A neighbor was really interested in having kids or being a foster family or adopt and they didn't qualify in some way. And they just kind of kept hanging around and sort of asked and kept asking and asking. The older couple didn't think anything was wrong and handed me over without telling the state. Wow. Quick question. Where were you for your first four years? Were you with your... No, that's what I'm describing. Oh, oh. oh that was the first four years. That's gotcha. First... Okay. Sorry. Sorry. So one year in, they handed you over to this neighbor. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that, a diversion. Is that right? The word diver- a, di- a digression. <laughs> <laughs> Another, a whole other, it was an altar, an altar path that had, had its ups and downs and was challenging on a lot of levels. And so with that in mind, eventually through a series of events with my story, anyway, the police got involved, figured out where I was, removed me. I remember that. I remember being transferred to like an emergency group homey type of thing. And then eventually placed somewhere in holding while all these moving parts were taking place. My adoptive family to be had put in a request to have a daughter at some point about a year prior and they kind of gave up and all of a sudden they got a call and the social services team, they were like, Hey, there's a girl available. You got to come get her tomorrow. Come get her tomorrow. So my parents did like a little bit of an interview and they picked me up. And I remember 
going to their house is sort of like the next place. And then that foster family that wasn't quite registered, they decided to fight to keep me. Wow. Are you four at this point? Just shy of four. Wow. There was a new sort of court case scenario that took place while the first one was still happening because my birth mother hadn't yet relinquished her parental rights, which is why I was kind of in the system for that length of time anyway. So there was like all these moving parts. And then eventually around four-ish, like about the four-year mark, my parents were the chosen placement. And so I stayed there and continued on there. And around that same time, I think my birth, what I was told is that my birth grandfather, who was in the picture enough to push for things to happen on my behalf, pushed for my birth mother to sign the papers to release me so I could, in fact, be adopted, circumvented that one foster family that wanted to try to keep me and allowed for the paperwork to be all complete for the Alberts. So in the beginning of my conception, my initial name was supposed to be Cameron. And my birth mother wanted to have a child to better her life, to kind Uh. of free her from the circumstances that were. And what were her circumstances? So she grew up in a very stable, middle-class, conservative Jewish family in Beverly Hills, actually. Wow. The oldest of three by a long shot. And the details that I'm telling you are a lot of hearsay, but I have met maternal biological relatives, which we'll get to later to confirm a bit of the stories. And then later on, I obviously will talk about it. I met my birth father who confirmed other pieces. So I do have a generality that I'll, I'll fill you in on now. So the ideas that I was shared with were, she was creative. She was an artist. She was a painter. She was desirous of being an interior decorator of sorts, just a unique, different kind of character, a bit of a strong personality and a leader, and relatively just a stable, simple, normal, healthy child. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere in her late teens, early 20s, from what I've been told, there was a traumatic event. I've been told different versions of what it is, but since it wasn't my life and it's not my story, I just kind of omit the details and pose to understand. There was some event that triggered, so this is the language that I use, it triggered a mental wellness spectrum challenge. That's what I like to say. They then would identify it as schizophrenia, paranoid, delusional, and it was scary for them. And I understand it was back way when, even now it's scary. And this was back in the day when like mental hospitals existed, just like over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, like she got it all. So she transferred into this mental wellness challenge and it was very difficult for my birth family to handle on every level. And for them, putting her in this mental hospital seemed the solution at the time. So I think she was in her 20s at that time, and she was medicated, heavily medicated, and all of the different things that they were doing to try to combat the paranoid schizophrenia and outbursts and whatnot, that was her track. While that was happening, a different storyline was taking place, which is that my birth father was a young free spirit born into poverty Mm. from the get-go. And he was the youngest of three brothers at first. And then the second incarnation of his family line, he became the middle of several more children. And if you can try to imagine this dynamic of a family that spent 
lots of time together in closed facility with very little income and their own mental wellness challenges to begin with. Yeah. Then compile drug interest and use and all of the behaviors that begin to cultivate with drug use, drug addiction, crime. Mm-hmm. So Don, my birth father, was sort of born into this life of hoarding and poverty and challenge, not seeing it as any sort of trauma or challenge at all. He just was, was this in Los Angeles. His storyline takes place a little more south, like Commerce, Bellflower, mm-hmm. to the Long Beach, Orange County area. But yeah, in California, Southern California. So you have like the Beverly Hills story. You have the Bellflower piece with my birth father. And then you have like my adoptive parents in Woodland Hills in their middle class, <laughs> very practical, simple life. You have all these revolving stories that kind of weave in and out. And it's just kind of fun to share. And then you get me popping up this little like tree of life, sort of branching everybody together. <laughs> but so Don was an interesting piece of this story because he wasn't initially my birth mother's partner. He actually... Oh the son of my birth mother's partner. Oh, she was with the father. Yeah. So which makes it a little more convoluted and intense for my birth family, because for them, they see this beautiful artistic, creative woman, my birth mother, who falls to a new realm of mental wellness struggle that was so extreme that they just couldn't really handle it. And then while she's in this mental hospital, she meets Don's father who struggled with mental wellness also, but he would take himself and put him in that same mental hospital for his monthly or biannual checkups. Mm. And he was older than her and they met and he was like infatuated with her beauty and her financial stability and the conservator that doled her money and everything that happened. And she kind of became this cash cow prize and they had some kind of bond my birth grandfather and my birth mother were actually partners. So, and my birth grandfather never quite divorced Don's mom for the fiscal dynamic that he had with the the whole setup they had. So it was just this one big expanded situation. When he would check himself into the hospital and see your birth mother, were they allowed to like have relations or was it much more just discussion? You don't know. I don't know. What I do know from deductive reasoning based on a lot of observation and a lot of interest in just kind of checking things out and listening to people and, you know, really kind of personally just being fascinated by all this myself. I know that they had an attachment dynamic that lasted until she died. She was always with Dawn's dad. And I think there was a piece of like a familial connection because even though Dawn's family, encompassed challenges that society wouldn't really appreciate. The hoarding, the cockroaches, the rats, the piles of people and all the other like low income people kind of pulling together their SSI to try to pay for an apartment, the collecting of things, the low income challenges, the poverty in general, then leading on to like the drugs and the, the criminology that sort of unfolded with all of that. There was a sense of togetherness and consistency and closeness that really was a dichotomy sometimes to 
the dynamic that I think my birth mother sort of came from in her youth only because the way that her family seems to have developed tools of intimacy and connection and communication and handling of stress and all of those things, pride, class, all of the things that come with the middle class, stable, conservative, Jewish, whatever the components were that made them them, there were stormy dynamics sometimes. And I later, when I went on my biological journeys of both paths and different chapters of my life, I you know was privy to learn different things about different people, what people could handle, what they couldn't, what they wanted, what they didn't, when they could be intimate and close and excited to be around you and what triggered them to just repel you. And I was, you know, able to kind of grasp the idea of why Mary Lou might have been interested in developing intimate relations with Don's family, because there was a sense of intimacy and connection that was different. And mm-hmm. I think it just was present. And I can, I, I just, I think I can just understand that piece. So that's sort of the story of what happened. So when, when Mary Lou was brought into Don's family, everyone was so excited. It was like back in the day, like they all kind of shared. It was like this big family party and, and they shared each other. They shared girlfriends. They shared everything you could imagine, including my birth mother was kind of a part of everyone because she was a little bit younger than my birth grandfather and significantly older than Don. And just, there was a time when Mary Lou really did hope that she could have a child to kind of better her life is what the story was that I told. There was other options of ideas of how I came to be conceived, but the ultimate idea was that Don's dad had a vasectomy and couldn't do it. And Mary Lou knew it. And she really wanted to have a child. Don could do it. And he was like available for one weekend. Like, okay, let's do it. Let's see what happens. And how, how old was he then? So Don, this is an interesting piece. Don was 16. Wow. When I was invented. I say that he invented me. So, you know, with semantics and linguistics, you know, I I like to use words to honor people, not to upset anyone. And I also like to add the reasons why. So I've always referred to Don as my birth father or the inventor of me because he (laughs) he gave me life. And I feel like that's super cool. He biologically handed down a life force and same with my birth mother. So it's not to take away from them the fact that they could have raised me or couldn't have raised me. It's that they gave me life and that's valuable. You know, yeah. and then adoptive parents, when they adopted me into their world and provided for me emotionally with education, culture, fiscally, just helping raise me with this nurture factor. Well, they became mom and dad and they're my mom and dad. And that's just kind of the way it is in my world of semantics. But with Don, I always would call him the inventor of me. And in fact, upon our reunion, which we can get to in a little bit, where I did find him five years ago with the help of a private investigator, after having met a bunch of maternal family members who were still living because my birth mother passed away before I had a chance to ever meet her. But I met like her sister and I met her first cousins and second cousins. And that was like a whole chapter of life. And then there was a couple of years of me just doing my thing. And really the inspiration for wanting to figure out like who my birth father really was, because I didn't know all the details just yet, just a couple with the court case paperwork and just from what people said and my birth mother's family members, I'm not wanting to really talk about it. And, you know, it was taboo. And so of course I'm like, well, how taboo is it? Like, let's find what's the worst thing that we could talk about. What's the stigma we're afraid of. Let's put it out there. Cause that's the kind of person I am. 
But anyways, I, you know, five years ago, I had a private investigator help me notate that he was homeless using still and running from the law because he'd been pretty much in the system since he was nine. He was already kind of on that track. And for him, being homeless was a freedom. So he loved that. And going in and out of jails and prisons often was like safety. He'd get food and a bed mm-hmm. in clean world and people knew him and he was a bit of a rock star because he played music, which is something I didn't know until I found him. And he played chess and was this brilliant savant character and, and young. I mean, we're not that, we weren't that far. I was going to say you're, you're what, 15, 16 years apart. Oh yeah. I mean, it was just really interesting. And so we did not have a parental child dynamic is really not until the very, very end of his departure to the next realm. But we had more of like a partnership, a best friendship, like something electrifying that was so fulfilling and profound. And together partnering, he allowed me to shadow him as if a spectrum adult, which he wasn't diagnosed specifically like that, but he was given every other diagnosis. And I really felt after having worked in a lot of different areas with those experiencing homelessness, with foster youth, with adoptive, you know, adults, Mm -hmm their biological family members working with incarcerated, you know, institutionalized situations, all of these things, I just use all these tools. And having been a shadow for autistic and learning, unique learning children, I just applied a lot of those tools to Don and he was just welcomed it. And together, we got him through the system. He got out of the system for the first time since he was nine, we partnered up and played music. And it was this beautiful transformation, like love story that I just, it's so exciting. But in the interim, he filled in a lot of holes for me and he shared stories and he knew Mary Lou up until the day she passed away. He still knew her. Oh, he and did. He was in contact with her or just. He never really left the family. And, you know, mm. he hinted at things because remember, he was so much younger than her. And yeah. his mind works and processes, though he was extraordinarily intelligent in his way. You know, he, he might think to say that she at first struggled with losing a child, not being able to keep a child. And then he would say that she didn't spend the rest of her life wishing that she could find me. She just kind of turned a new leaf and started doing drugs after that. Wow. And got into like the drug situation, doing, you know, smoking crack and drinking coffee. And that was her dynamic. And there was a whole story that unfolded for her, the rest of her life until she passed away, literally like on the sidewalk of a heart failure because of the mm-hmm. drug. And Don lived a real racy, racy life. I mean, his character is so interesting. And and having shadowed him and advocated for him and basically what I call went in the field to observe him to then offer platforms of exposure for him to choose if he wanted to and guided him through his choices, he assimilated into a dynamic he never, ever even knew of. And we never talked, oh, this is a better life than the other. We just, I just picked up the tools of observing what he felt was an identity forming behavior. And if it wasn't going to hurt him and if it was safe, like he wanted to sit outside all the time because he preferred outside, I created safe space Don's place in a portable fashion and set it up everywhere and basically adopted him into my home life and shadowed him for five years until he passed away. And Thing that was so interesting because he allowed me to love him in a special way and he loved me and he filled in so many holes and gaps. And my initial desire to go look for him was because I was kind of trying to figure out why I had a trouble cultivating relationships with a male partner to have a family of my own. Like it's been very difficult for me to figure that out. And yeah. I didn't 
gone yet. So when I went to find him, I didn't really expect in the moments that it was going to unfold the way it did. But every minute we spent together turned into these moments that became the rest of our life. And it was amazing. How old was Mary Lou when she had you? She was almost 38. Oh, she was. She was that old. Yes. And part of the court case while I was in the first foster care dynamic, trying to map that out because that was illegal. But if she had gotten in trouble for a statutory because Don was 16, 17, she would have gone to the mental hospital and been locked up there. Like for good. I don't know, but at least yeah. for a while. But yeah. Don, Don just said it was his idea and he got thrown in the hole because he was already going to like what they call it youth authority, which is the step before prison. Right. For stealing a car to like get some heroin or something. And for him, and I say that lightly because I know Don so well now and I understand that for him, he was really just looking for a way to feel good. And for him, drugs weren't scary. They were amazing. And he never had doctors or a doctor relationship or parental guidance to even explore if he did have depression that could have been helped or if he did have ADHD or if he was Asperger, whatever these possibilities were, there was no real language back then to even help a child in his situation. So for him to go out and do what he called whites and then reds and then up it to like, you know, he called it red ripple wine. And then, you know, he loved weed plants. And then from there he might, he graduated to like a little Coke and a little bit of speed. And then it turned into crystal meth and then it turned into heroin. And, and for him, it was like a journey of excitement because he was searching for what made him feel good. It was just very simple. And then if he had to you know, commit some crime to make sure that he could still sustain to feel good, well, he thought he was thoughtful about it. Like, well, I'll just mix some like fake hash together because I can't afford to sell real hash and I'll convince people to buy this. I'll get the money and then I'll go buy some heroin. And like he had these like, you know, and so, you know, you think, oh, well, that's a crime. But then if you really start to study, I studied, you know, sort of the science behind his thinking. I could tell right away before I even met him in the letters that he had written to like his brother from prison. Cause I happened to have a couple of days before I actually met him where I did reconnaissance undercover in the field and like kind of nested everything. Cause I knew he was doing drugs of some kind. I knew the criminology history and I, but I didn't know his character yet. So why would I put myself at a risk? And that's another reason, by the way, I go by Cammy is because I didn't tell Don my legal and music name, Jenny Alpert, for quite a while. I didn't even tell him much about my music life yet. I spent most of the first two to three weeks in the field focusing on Don, writing a log, when he did drugs, when he came down. Could he read children's books? I brought them and we read them. I mean, and really over the course of the five years, when I look back now, I think, oh my gosh, we lived a lifetime in those five years. He ended up meeting my kindergarten friends all the way to my college friends, to my music colleagues in the span of five years. I mean, he, he allowed me and I was able to navigate and bring him through every stage of my life for five years, inclusive the present moment partnership that we built as he would transform into this self-identified vagrant was kind of how he knew himself to be. And then with all of the tools and opportunities that we kind of used to create together, he became this real like self-confident volunteer with me, musician, speaker, performer. And every day was beautiful. Every day was a joy. Did he ever quit using? Yes. So that's a good question. When I met him, he was no longer doing heroin because it was too expensive and he was just kind of not able to get it. And really he did tell me that if I had met him during his heroin years, a lot of our story may have been different because that's just of itself. And I understood that. 
I've never had addiction problems myself, but I've been around so many addicts that I just kind of had a bit of an understanding of some of the different style of addiction and relationship to whatever the chosen drugs are that I just kind of observed. And the biggest piece was just letting Don be himself and letting him do things. So like in the first three weeks when I met him, he was still shooting up crystal meth and drinking and doing whatever and whatever it was. And I just, and he tried to hide it at first. And I was like, don't hide it. You want to shoot up, shoot up. That's what you do, right? That's who you are, right? Just do what you want to do. And like, it's hard to describe this, but how I found him was your social security number will give you a sort of a line of where you live, where you go. Also his, they call it an Olsen file, all of his criminal like history. It was like sky high. So it wasn't difficult for the private investigator to take his name, to take my name, to look in the records and to kind of figure things out and find the most recent address where he was getting mail for jail stuff or for social services stuff, maybe food stamps, whatever. And so I went to the, all the addresses in the packet that I was given to kind of like do reconnaissance. Little did I know that all of those addresses as I ultimately weaved into the moment of where he was going to get his mail. I actually went through his whole childhood address story. And later when we reunified, he took me back to all of those places and, and told me the stories of every single place, which was really kind of special. So I was kind of always six degrees of separation on his tail, even like in my youth. When I volunteered for the Downtown Women's Center, he was right there on Fifth and Julian, like wow. doing drugs. You know, when I built like a rehabilitation program for the men's correctional facility, just because I thought it would be interesting to do, and I submitted it to the Los Angeles Police Department and they accepted it, Don was in that jail at that time. But I wouldn't have known that because I didn't know, you know. And so as we had our reunion story and we shared stories every day and It was just interesting to be like, I was on that corner and you were on that corner. And how many times could we have met? When I first reported a record, it was in Long Beach walking distance from this dwelling that I ultimately found Dawn at. That's crazy. Like, yeah, where my birth mother died right outside. So it's like really interesting how revolving doors. I mean, like if there was a movie that could be made of showing the six degrees of separation as a separate movie to the fact of our, our reunion story and all those details is like a special piece in and of itself for some kind of motion picture. I hope one day, like the other movie could totally be like six degrees of separation. Like if we never had met, like, it's just very, it's very intriguing to me. I just find that very fascinating. But yeah. So when I went into the field and did some reconnaissance of that house, the dwelling, I would say it had been in the family for years as sort of an option to get away from all the rentals that they would get kicked out of because of the hoarding and because of the drugs and because of the gangs that would come. And when I arrived at this final place, it was really on the last leg. The garage had been taken over for years by the local Mexican gangs that were making drugs there and prostituting women and kind of running a racket that Don was very familiar with, but he was more on the outskirts, like a little fish, just getting some drugs, you know, and he was happy to like be around it because it was convenient for him, but he wasn't happy anymore. Like when he was younger, it was something common, but at this point it wasn't. And so he would run and take his food stamps, sell them and go to the nearest casino because in his family, gambling was very common, but Don was a savant. He was extraordinarily intelligent with math and probability and odds. So he actually practiced and learned how to play poker and then a craps for like Vegas where it's legal there to try to double up his money so that he could get free food and drinks while he's at the casino. And then he would money to get his drugs. And he was never the homeless type that would be what you see on the streets where there's, you know, all the tents and stuff out there. 
and often it would be ironic when we would drive and like see these places because we end up speaking to a lot of homeless demographic he would be like, look what they're doing to the city. Like, I would never do that. Like, that's terrible. And I would say, well, what would you do, Don? And he would say, well, and he would show me that he would like a freeway off ramp, perhaps right by the Commerce Casino. There used to be big, big bushes. And he would go inside the bushes and dig out like a little space and put like a little tent in there and then like take like electric wires from like plugs, skin them, tie them together and go to the nearest gas station and wire it all together with his batteries so he can get electricity when he needed. I mean, wow. that really a smart survivor. And, you know, it's funny because when you start to fill in the gaps of all the perspective of everyone's peace, you start to wonder like, well, who really was a survivor? Like Don never identified as a victim. Never. There's a lot of recordings that I was fortunate to make before he passed away about five months ago from liver failure, from his lifestyle. I think he got a, a new lease on life when we met. So we were very lucky to even get the five years. And eventually his liver just couldn't handle it anymore. And as we saw the decline, I just started to record our, our conversations even more. And I asked him, like, what would you say to a, an adoptee who's looking for their birth family? Or what would you say to a birth parent who wishes that they could find their, you know, child or they're sad that they had to relinquish their child? Or, you know, what would you say? And, and he had such amazing, profound perspective and answers. And the fact that he was a birth father representing that component, which is a, more of a challenge to kind of get inside of often. We hear a lot of birth mothers stepping yeah. forward, often that a birth father sort of steps forward. And I think that Don was really proud to have an opportunity just to say his thoughts. And I mean, I even asked him, like, what would you talk to you about? What would you say to those who are experiencing or choosing homelessness? What would you say to those who are addicts? And he just had such interesting perspective that I just want to share with the world as much as possible, because I just think it's very, very healing to hear somebody talk about breaking stigma. And being open to difference and understanding that there's no one story and that there's an umbrella, but that there's a plethora of perspective and experience and to really be interested, to want to understand rather than have projection and judgment be the lead. It was just like a really amazing, because I share that sentiment myself, that just my wiring is very forgiving. I never harbored any anger with my birth parents that I was adopted. I never, ever had any anger I actually have never even really felt like desirous of, you know, wishing I had met my birth mother. Like I feel very content and comfortable. I understand her story enough. And just meeting Dawn was just amazing, of course. But even before that, I never felt resentful or angry or anything like that. I think the biggest piece as an adopted person that was my biggest struggle was the disassociation that I didn't know was happening because I didn't understand that growing up. Yeah. I felt out of place so often. Like it wasn't that there wasn't nurturing or love or inclusion or effort, but I was so differently wired from my adoptive parents. I was this artist. I painted that painting back there and there's a lot of paintings, but I don't identify as a painter. I just spent a couple summers doing it and was like, oh, maybe this is, you know, my birth mother's calling that she never completed because she wanted to paint and do interior designing. And she wasn't able to finish that in her lifetime. So I'm going to complete that for her now. And so I just spent a couple summers painting and then whatever, or I interior decorated this or my living space. And it's just, it was kind of like a hidden passion and talent. I didn't even know that I had, it was kind of shocking how really seriously like capable I was really honestly. And how, what did your adoptive parents do? Can I just close that one thought? Yep. Cause the other piece. So with the interior design, just having this capability of 
understanding something without ever learning it was kind of a shock to me. When I met John, he had that same sentiment. He would say to me, oh, I learned chess, but I don't know how. I just knew it. He's like, I feel like I was just planted this information, was able to survive because it was his surviving, shining knight in armor. Like his, his tool to get through life was chess, poker, and music. And he was self-taught and really amazing if you see the videos. And when it comes to me, I, my birth for my adopted parents, once I arrived at their house, I was very lucky that it had a piano in it. Because imagine if I was adopted into another family who didn't have any instruments at all, what would have happened? But they had a piano and I just liked to bang on it. Turns out my birth grandfather was a piano player on Dawn's side. Who knew? Music. Yeah, it's like a genetic thing. And so my parents instantly wanted to help me. They put me in classes. They gave me piano lessons. They allowed me with the acting lessons and they allowed me with all these different options and pushed education and learning despite my challenges of spelling and processing and remembering things that later I find that could also have been inherited. Mm. It's very interesting, right? And I just ended the whole music bit. I did a lot of things in my life driven beyond my own understanding that Dawn never got to complete. I even created a tour as an independent singer-songwriter once called Blood Driven to help raise awareness about the benefits of donating blood to save a life because I had a song called Listen to Your Heart and I gave it away and it was Blood Driven. It was sort of about the idea of being a biological adoptee, not knowing my birth family yet, not knowing where I come from with my blood, mm-hmm. rolled out their nature versus nurture and let's just be all one big piece of moving love together, right? So it's just an interesting, I just wanted to finish that digression there because you know, you never know like what components from nature, what you're inherited to do, like this painting or interior organization, you know, or the music and composing and performing and kind of being like a traveler, backpacker, riffraffer kind of person that I was as an independent touring musician. That's definitely Dawn and Mary Lou. But then you have my practicality and some of my anxieties to make sure that I always pay my bills and and keep being productive and being positive and doing things in the world that are helping other people. And that's very much how I was raised with the values and ethics and morals of Jill and Bill, my parents. My mom was a real estate agent after doing a lot of other things. Her claim to fame was she was just really, really good at buying and selling houses and helping people, you know, build a new life. She was just very, very, very top of her work doing that. And then my dad was an optometrist and he had kind of built that company with his dad who started it first. And my one of my brothers ultimately took it on later. My dad passed away quite young. He got cancer when I was in high school, which was very sad because he was only 54 when he passed away. And that was very hard for us. He was a very sweet, but like not super emotionally open person. So there was a lot of mystique and mystery there with his warm generosity that then sometimes would be a pullback. That's my memory of him. But he was just really thoughtful and caring about everyone and an interesting, interesting guy for the few years I got to be influenced by him. And so, yeah, so he was, and he was very meticulous and very clean and very neat and orderly, you know, and my mom too, very regimented about just, you know, keeping things together. So it's just really interesting, the components, all of them, and they call it, as we know, the adoption constellation. There are just so many movements. So just by the fact of my own wiring personally. And I think I just have always had a real drive for love and connection and survival. Like just, I'm just not wired to give up even in the worst days when I want to. Did you feel when you were growing up the sort of, I mean, cause you've mentioned it and this is what all sort of adoptees kind of 
bond together over Sarah and I have met so many now is that you are the fish out of water. You don't really fit in, but you're loved. It's a very strange place to be. And I definitely struggled most of my youth feeling out of place mm-hmm. and there was a hole. Yeah. And that was kind of what I was leading to going back to when I said I never felt resentment or anger or like I was thrown away or any of that. But I always mm-hmm. starved to know where I came from because I knew I was from somewhere else, both because I was old enough to know and everyone I was in so many different therapy situations to figure out where I'm supposed to be. And then the outwards are this loving, practical, present, providing stability that handle communication and emotional wellness very differently. And I, you know, show up kind of needing a lot of positive reinforcement and calm care. Mm-hmm. Yet sometimes it was difficult for m- my mom, especially to, to have the tools to do that based on her upbringing or her tolerance level or what her mood was like in the day. And she, you know, so there was a lot of like oil and water with the mother daughter dynamic that added challenge to being adopted and just trying to find that love. And Is late- she still alive? Yeah. So my mom, Jill, she's still alive. She's a very okay. young person because, you know, I didn't tell anyone I was going in the field to find my birth father. I was going to ask that, which she knew about it at the beginning. I didn't didn't tell anyone that, but she had already had years of, you know, when I went and met all my birth maternal cousins and stuff. So, and there had been different incarnations of relationship with the birth cousin, this, or a birth second cousin, that, and, you know, it was sort of a soft, safe set of scenarios to prepare myself for dawn, I think, because, you know, there were times when the birth reunions worked out really well and they lasted. There were times when sometimes the birth reunions couldn't handle that. I reminded them of my birth mother mm-hmm. or I tried some way that made it too difficult for them to stay in touch. And I already was privy to the possibilities of relationship and digression. It just, I knew it would happen. So I was prepared for anything upon meeting Dawn, I just didn't expect it to be so amazing and beautiful, like really honestly amazing. Did she get to know Dawn? Over time, (laughs) I took about five months by myself. So I did a three-week period, what I called in the field, letting Dawn be who he was and as he was. And then it led up to all the events that took place, led up to him choosing to turn himself in and to stop using on his own. And when I say stop using, I will let you know that I believe in parameters first over boundaries if a person functions better with the concept of parameters so that there's not so much constriction. That means that there's room for ebb and flow, for mistake, for growth. And there was a lot of little tools and tactics that I did with Don blindfolding him so he didn't know where I lived. He couldn't come and go anywhere. He always invited in and he would always be welcomed. And it was like a game for us, welcome in depending on what stage he was in. So in the first, after he turned himself in to get out of the system, the first stage, then he was given like a eight eight to nine month year probation period, which he never was able to complete his whole life because it's so complicated. I just shattered him through everything and built a relationship with this probation officer who like trusted me. I mean, even to this day, the Long Beach whole police department and LA know who we are. 
And like, I keep in touch with them. And they actually told me just recently, like they took my memoir and they just said, you know, we want to share this with probation officers because we really do feel that, you know, you and Don and your story will impact the way that we do things here. And we really appreciate, you know, your creative solution solving, you know, suggestions that worked out for you. I mean, we all know that Don was an anomaly, that our dynamic is unique. And when it comes to birth parents and adoptees and reunions, not everything is so happy and not everything is so lucky. And we knew that right. going. And so, yeah, so he, I, all these questions I'm answering out of order, but Don <laughs> did end up stopping I and mean, he wasn't using heroin anyway. He was just using like crystal meth and like pills and stuff. And when I say just using, it's because it really does make a difference what the drugs are. And I'm not an absolutist. So when he got out of that prison or jail window and I picked him up on October 5th and brought him into my car I said, you get to choose every day what you want to do. And I'm going to provide you the platform for that. And we just kind of unfolded and medical marijuana to me, wasn't going to be a problem, but having him go buy it would, because he wouldn't have the social skills and the experience of knowing how to avoid a misperception, you know, or he might try to steal something simply because it's out of habit. So I guided him through all of those steps as a shadow and an advocate so we allowed for like, and I also measured the medical marijuana as it happened once we got permission from the, because it was legal by then, which is also a very interesting, you know, digression is that like, wow, you know, how many times is he in jail for having weed? I don't do drugs or smoke much at all, but like, you know, just to think about how, what a revolution it was for him to all of a sudden be allowed, you know, and even though it was recreationally allowed, I took him to a medical doctor just so that he had that experience of being like, here's a doctor. We're not going to put you on, you know, anxiety medicine yeah. or mental wellness medicine, because you have had a bad experience with that. And we don't want to do anything that you don't want to do, but let's try a different option. And when we tried a different option, he really found happiness, you know? So, you know, he never had any prescriptions ever that were really his when he actually really did have like asthma and COPD. So he was for the first time, I facilitated a doctor patient relationship where I was with him at every single like doctor visit so that he couldn't just like lie and try to get some medication. No, he really got his own inhaler and he was shocked that he could get his own prescription like his whole life he never had I know think of that you know and it's just so so all those pieces so that's the answer there is that he stopped desiring to do things that were illegal mostly I think driven by the fact that it would be dangerous to us and to me and he really somehow seemed to love me now if there was times in the very beginning for the first few months that he you know did something I understood there would be that possibility three steps forward two steps back but I guided him all the way and slowly assimilated him indoors to like where I was staying to then where I moved to then where we moved eventually with the house. And, you know, it was just an interesting overview of a bigger picture situation. Most people that are dealing with addiction and mm-hmm. addict will not have our story because Don and I had a symbiotic desire for love and connection. And we had the music piece that inspired him to want things to be safe and want things to be positive. And he also had me being like, okay, well, you've always really had a difficult time measuring in moderation. What if I gave you a nightcap? And I measured it in a little tiny cup. Once he was allowed to have a little bit of alcohol because being on AB 109 during probation, you're not even allowed to do that. And there's a reason. Mm. And then, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm ethnically and spiritually Jewish. During Friday nights, we have Shabbat, we have a little wine. And Don learned all the music, not just to my original music, but to like, for the cultural aspect of what I would do on the side to assist with like Jewish identity through music, he learned the bass and guitar of all of that music and joined me even then just because. And then, you know, a lot of times there's blessings and you have a little wine and he could never have it. And 
I understood that he had addiction, but I also understood what motivated him to do it. And if he wasn't pouring and measuring himself, mm-hmm. curious to see what would happen if I poured and measured it and what would happen. And I, we found the parameter that worked. And so he was allowed to have a little bit of a nightcap here and there measured by me provided. And I provided meals and it was this very, wasn't a codependent thing. It was just a very creative out of the box symbiotic thing that worked. But anyways, to your question, as that was unfolding, because I did a lot of that first is why I just told you that. Mm-hmm. I, that part first, assimilating him indoors first, building a routine first, building safe space, Don's place outdoors with a little backpack with his chest and with his coffee and with the music and you know, with a snack and I would find parks that were hidden away that he couldn't leave in really nice areas where it would be very difficult that there'd be some drug deal going on, but he would still get the feeling of outdoors. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is a lot happened for a couple months before I said to my mom, Hey, by the way, <laughs> you I know could, that yeah. court case that you know about that scares everyone. I got that guy living with me now. Like it wasn't like that, but I did want to trust my own instinct and my own passion and creative intelligence first before having people project their fears and concerns and try to control everything. And I knew who was in my environment and how they might be. So I just, oh, yeah. I want to think any mom would have those like, woo, 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 woo. we're scared at first, but I think that's part of the powerful piece to our relationship is that we really shocked people. Don shocked people. Our partnership inspired more demographics than I realized. I mean, all the way up until when he was sick and I chose Tarzana Hospital because even though he was on Medi-Cal and assigned somewhere, I knew the hospital was close and the doctors and everything. And Mm -hmm. they didn't understand my advocacy, you know? And so I was preparing for any possibility leading up to this, right? So, you know, they even told me later that my advocacy and despite the pandemic challenges, that they were sort of off put at first and concerned once they really started to understand the pieces of the story that it wasn't that Don was diagnosed as a spectrum adult, but he had enough behaviors not dangerous to himself that were congruent with that of possibly Asperger's flapping hands, very loud voice, mm-hmm. when he was stimulated, he could sound like he was angry, though he wasn't. You know, and and that could be distracting to someone who's trying to help someone who doesn't really maybe know. And the fact that he did have a history of drug addiction, I did never really want to leave him in a hospital alone where doctors will always say, what's your pain level? Because at any given moment, he might say it's terrible, even if it was or maybe wasn't. I wanted to make sure that I knew what every milligram of what was being chosen. And if, in fact, he really was in pain, we wanted to take slow steps to manage that with the best options and I needed to be there. And so later the hospice staff, the, the medical staff, they even told me because I called them and thanked them a couple months later. And they just said, you know, we've shared your story to our team because it really has shaped the way we want to handle patients. The same as the police department was like, you know, we want to share with our probation officers the way that, you know, these options or perspective to kind of you know, try to to approach things a little bit differently when you're in a unique situation, the same as Hope of the Valley and those experiencing homelessness and working with that nonprofit who helps house and get social services for the homeless demographic. There's many demographics that would benefit from a shadow or an advocate. And that was something that was kind of missing that's sort of starting to be implemented in LA, which is really cool. You know, and in addition to the final piece, which we can open up to more questions now, is there was also a window of time where 
we ended up meeting a Jeanette Yoth who runs Celia Center, which is here in LA. It's a nonprofit that's geared towards adoptees, fellow fostered youth and adults, um, or formerly fostered adults and birth family members and adoptive parents. The whole member of the constellation, she basically provides support groups and conferences and events and programs and education and all these pieces to help heal because she herself was a formerly fostered, adopted, experienced in biological reunion. And so we, she's from New York though. So we were just kind of like yin and yang and partnered up to help and do things. And she would have Don and I come and speak a lot. And Don represented like this birth father voice, which was so interesting and fun. And then I was, you know, as you're asking the formerly fostered adopted mm-hmm. And we just had a very different take on the adoption constellation and healing and communicating, connecting that we hoped added to her dynamic. And then later, you know, she said the same thing, like you really, you know, make us think differently about stigma and about challenge. And it's kind of cool. And so I think I'm really proud of that piece as an adoptee. Oh, for sure. And this is what I was wondering too, is you're just because backtracking a little bit, you mentioned Shabbat dinner and things like that. Did your mom end up coming on board with some of that? Just that's kind of, you know, that he was honoring that and learning the music for it. And how did she get involved? Right. So what's funny is my birth maternal family, they were conservative Jewish and observant. My birth grandfather pushed for me to be adopted by a Jewish family because he wanted the ethics, values, and morals and culture to continue. And my adoptive family are not religious whatsoever. We have like Hanukkah and Passover. Yeah, casual. Yeah, Happy New Year. But my parents were very thoughtful about it. They asked, do you want to be bat mitzvah? And I was like, what's that? And I ended up doing singing lessons instead. I really didn't understand exactly the whole piece until much later. They did send me to Jewish sleepaway summer camp, which really filled in a lot of spiritual and educational gaps that made it cool for me to connect to this part of my heritage. And I was very lucky to have nature versus nurture kind of meet in the middle. And the piece that was connected was the fact that both of my maternal pieces have shared ethics and values. And another piece to share is that how I found that out was when my birth grandmother on my mother's side passed away. She had a will and an estate plan for the family, which is a common infrastructure in our culture, many cultures, but ours in specific, we're sort of educated and wired to make sure you pass down what you have to your children, to your children's children. Right. Yeah. Because of the whole Jewish piece of like, Mm -hmm. keep us alive. Right. (laughs) My adoptive parents, they were not religious at all. Like if I were to say, hey, let's have Shabbat, they'd be like, really? No, no, no. Like they are like, oh, it's Passover. Oh, this month is Passover. Let's pick a day. I'm like, no, no, no. Like Passover falls on like a date. Like, oh no, let's pick a day when we're available. And so, you know, you kind of just make room for everybody's life. Right. So anyways, my birth grandmother had this whole infrastructure set up to protect her children. She knew that I existed and I was legally written into the estate plan that if anything were to happen to Mary Lou, my birth mother eventually would come to me, even though I was adopted out and legally severed and everything. I was still written legally in this estate plan. That's which neat, actually. I think that's it was neat. So neat. Yeah. And all that went down. Part of how I found out more about Dawn was because when Mary Lou passed away, before I had a chance to meet her, two attorneys got together and contacted my mom and was like, "Hey, you know, your your daughter's birth mother passed away, and there's an estate plan and, and a case, and we just want to let you know that." We're trying to open up the opportunity for adoptees to inherit. 
And if this works, it might become a federal law. And that was, I was like, I was that case. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm really kind of, that's really special. And so then, you know, later when I find more about adoptive parents and their ethics, values, and morals, like they're very similar infrastructurally. They do the same thing, the estate plan, the will, the whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, because Don never had anything, never, never, never. And towards the end of his time here, he wanted to try to like help me pay off my house and want to make sure that I was taken care of. He went from mm-hmm. being sort of like a, a youthful, free spirit that I guided and led to really maturing towards the end of the five years and really wanting to take on that sort of parental guidance figure to make sure that I drove better, that I prepared for bad drivers and protected me. That it, I mean, he was very good with his wiring. He's like, oh, I, I, at least you've got a stereo I wired that I can leave for you. You know, like, you know, and, and he just really wanted me to, you know, go out and find a partner and start a family and do my thing. And it was just a very loving thing that he left me with. And then, you know, I have my mom now who makes sure that I'm taken care of in her way. And it's just really special. And so she did meet Don and she did allow him in for holidays, any holiday. And and he was a very unique person where he preferred to be outside. It was too difficult for him to be inside with groups. So she understood that and would let him come in. And then he would sit outside in his Don safe space little area and I'd bring him food. And then I would just kind of do my thing. And it's very similar to what you might discover if you learned about shadows mm-hmm. spectrum child or adult where you're with them sometimes you interact and you're with them but then there's other times where you're just they're just in there the peripheral to make sure that they're doing cool and don took care of himself and just he had spirit friends he talked with and he had music and chess and books and he was just happy as can be in his little space in the shade and you know it there were times when it was hard for my mom i'm not yeah. going to deny that but even to this day she appreciates and understands how much Don did for me and how much our relationship added to my life, which doesn't take away from my relationship to her. It's a very cool, like circular story. Even just, you could have ended up with the neighbors and then you end up with your family who's musical or had the piano and left you, you know, the ability to make music. I mean, things that kind of came together. When you look all of these things symbiotic, you know, you just sort of start to really wonder like fate, mm. mentality. you know, I mean, like there was just too many poignant moments in all these chapters looking back that I'm just like, yeah, I mean, and it's sad for me to, to not have Don because he really, every single second that here was like a joy of love. There was just, we barely ever had any discord ever, which if you can imagine that being possible, I'm like, wow, maybe I'll never. And he was just so forgiving and accepting and allowed me to be, and was really this, you know, I just could never do really terribly wrong. But when I was wrong, he was able to say it in his way. And I just feel like, you know, it's, it's sad because with grief and loss, and this is also something important for adoptees, you know, to consider if you haven't met your birth family, and they've already passed on, you have to kind of find resolve with that piece and maybe meet cousins or whatever else is out there to fill in the gaps of who you are. And if you have met them and they are in their positive relationships, and eventually, even with your whomever is your family, people are going to pass away. And I think that's a subject piece that should be more talked about, that we should be more prepared for that. You know, I had a whole identity built around Don and I is Cammy and Don, the biological duo that shared our story and 
And we shared my mom, Jill, and my dad, Bill's story. We shared Mary Lou's story together. And Don would say he could have never done anything the way that the Alperts did it. He was grateful for them and he appreciated them. And he knew he could never raise me and never intended to. He was 16. And the things that he said about, you know, what he would say to a, an adoptee who, you know, wishes that they could find their parents. He, he said, well, look, someone's got to raise you. You know, someone's got to raise you. And, and, you know, you thank them for what they did and you thank them for what they didn't do. And you, you go on your way and you, you become self-reliant in who you are and you just kind of have to, you know, step it up. And I just, you know, I thought that was really a special sense. That is special. Did we want to hear your song, but I do have one more quick question. Did Don meet you as a baby? That's a good question. So yes, because there was speculation who was my paternal contributor. Ultimately, when the DNA testing came out, Don was taken out of youth authority and brought to the hospital. And I apparently a police officer handed me to him and he wow. like a second when he was 17. And then I was taken away and like, that was it. And he talked about that. And, you know, he never really identified much with the concept of trauma or abuse or neglect or anything that he may or may not have experienced himself. And, you know, he knew right from wrong, but he never really had a shame or a negative spin on any of the choices and the lifestyle that he lived or that he was around. And he would never really articulate that he felt a sense of sadness or loss because he didn't get to keep me or anything like that. But there was a glimmer in his eye when he talked about that moment Mm. that I believe that there were heartstrings pulled at some point to realize you created something and that's it. They're gone. I mean, a 17 year old boy and his lifestyle, it's crazy (laughs) to think about. So right before Don passed away a couple months, we, we, I wrote a memoir. It's called home is where the heart is home is where the heart is an adoption and biological reunion story. And there are a few chapters in here that I just asked on questions and recorded it. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. We'd love to see that. I'll send you guys copies for free. Happy to do it. I just give them away. I just bought like a huge box. I'm just giving them away. But like he talks about things like this is one of my favorite chapter three is, you know, he talked, it's called supporting my habit. And I just typed out what he said. Like, you know, he said, if anyone were to read my Olson files and learnt about the things I'd done in my life, they'd think to themselves, no wonder this guy sticks to himself. Who in their right mind would want to hang out, hang around him? You know, I was like, <laughs> it just kind of, kind of continues on where he describes, you know, his relationship to drug use. And he explains later, like his perspective, you know, some people are users, some people are abusers, some people are addicted physically with heroin. In fact, most everyone can't not be. And there's others where there's choices. And anyway, so yeah. So it's just a special little piece here. Anyone's interested in that. And also there's music online. So this is a little thing. I brought Don into a recording studio, a professional. Why don't you say it out loud? Because not everybody's watching YouTube. Most people are listening to the podcast. So tell us the name of it, where they can find it. This is an audio recording of the first time that I took Don into a professional recording studio after having learned all the stories of how he was this mastermind of music and in and out of prisons and one of was one of one of the only inmates that was allowed to play with every group because of his capabilities. He was really proud of that. And so this is online, it's on YouTube, it's on iTunes, whatever. And it's him guesting on guitar with a song called Until Then that I had written with another writer. He just learned all my music and he has his own flavor. 
and it's with the professional band. And then later on, there's a interview with Don. And if you see the YouTube version, you see a photo montage of us. Information oh. And it's really special. And he shares a good piece of story there. This is called biological reunion. It's just there. We'll put it all also just on our podcast. We'll make sure to put all the links for our listeners too. Oh, cool. Fun. Yeah. And then this is like one of my favorite photos of us. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And we, right before he passed away, we had had a plan before I realized the quickness of the decline. We were regularly performing and speaking in different settings from foster care and adopted biological reunion events to most lunch times for those experiencing homelessness to different fundraiser workshops, events, guests, podcasts, whatever. And I had booked this tour around the United States so that Don could see all these different places. And we just weren't able to continue because he was just too sick. But interim of all of this, during the very beginning, I met a couple that were producers of films and they were like, oh, there's there's a movie here for sure. And they brought in a documentary director who made a short doc that's coming out later this year called Homeless, the soundtrack. Back there is a little poster for it, which I can't zoom in on, but it's there. And it's a really sweet little nugget that introduces who we are and our story a little more in depth than the news reel that you yeah. might have seen. That was really sweet that we got to be on national news. I mean, that was just for Don to be able to share his story that way. I mean, how cool. It was That's, cool. Yeah. Well, really excited and happy to have had you here. Now, we want to hear the song before we, we wrap up. We'd love to hear it if you want to play. We'd love it. Is there yeah. anything I could just share with your listeners before I moved to the song? Because it's very short. It's like two minutes. That's actually a song that I wrote about foster care and adoption and sort of kind of being lost, trying to sort of figure out your identity. There's another song as well that I'll just give you as a free download later called Constellations, which is about the adoption constellation, which you can just share with your... You, oh, your, I love it. Yeah. So I'll do heaven. This whole thing is beautiful for us. I mean, it's a great story. And just, I really feel like you have a a spiritual connection with all this. It's just too uncanny. It's neat. I really appreciate you asking me. I know that you're both adopted also, right? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So let's hear your song. We'd love to hear it. I'm excited for it. Me too. So for a little something different today, Louise and I are not going to do a wrap up. We are going to let Jenny, Cammy sing a song for us. And it says everything it needs to say. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me today on your podcast show. I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Jenny Alpert, otherwise known as my birth name, Cammie. And I am going to sing an original song that I wrote about a foster care experience and being adopted and just finding yourself through all of the situations that we find ourselves in. And it's called Heaven. Sitting in my car Trying to remember What you said to me Sitting next to Spending our whole lives Making up for what our parents did Try to get hold of 
it embraced temptation. My mouth's so bitter. Heaven is a place I'm running from. Don't know what's real. Don't think I'll heal. Don't want to do what I preach. Heaven is a place I'm running don't know what's real, don't think I'll hear, don't want to be good for you. Embrace the silence, but I want you in, empty and screaming. Never know what it feels to give love while receiving traces of wasted on my face. Drunk and I'm drowning in your wisdom. Why did I listen? Now I'm caught in memories of you. Heaven is a place I'm running from. Don't know what's real. Don't think I'll heal. Don't want to do what I should. Heaven is a place. I'm running from Don't know what's real Don't think I'll heal Don't want to be good For you It's beautiful. beautiful, really emotional. Thank you for sharing your story and coming on today and giving us your time and being so generous. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. <laughs>